Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 14 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I am Nick Garisco. You can find me at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. Which players should we avoid? Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boy. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. conversation about bust or fading players or do not draft list these kind of negative connotations usually get me in trouble and the common retort is omg how can you hate this guy he's such a great player you were so wrong and i'm like whoa 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 nobody said anything about hating anybody this show is not about hatred the context of labeling somebody a bust is relative to their fantasy football draft cost. It's all about fading or avoiding a player because he's too expensive to draft. In other words, you don't think his production will match or exceed where you have to draft him. It's more like saying that I disagree with where the market has valued this player. And fading or avoiding a player or calling labeling him a bust does not mean that you don't think they're going to have a good season. Again, it's about the investment. It's about the price. Very few fantasy analysts actually hate the players themselves. I think that would be an odd emotional investment. But I just want to make it clear from the onset that I'm not hating on anyone. And I'm certainly not saying that they're just going to totally suck next year. I'm saying that I'm not going to be drafting them in fantasy football this year because I don't agree with their draft costs. And I don't think they'll live up to those expectations that come with somebody who's being selected at his average draft position. But we're going to cover some of these players who I am avoiding in drafts. And I'm not going to take the easy way out here. I'm not just picking a bunch of guys who are going in round 12. There are some big names on this list and every player is actually going before pick 75. The main event in today's show will be the AFC players to avoid at cost and next episode will be the NFC fades but first we have a lot of critical fantasy news to get to training camp is here so important intel is flooding in and we're only a few weeks away from your fantasy drafts it doesn't feel like it but a lot of this stuff is starting to get very real first up we have some Miami Dolphins news Dolphins wide receivers Alan Hearns and Albert Wilson are the latest opt-outs for the 2020 season. And the Dolphins' number two wide receiver opposite of Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, is reportedly not 100% fully recovered from his ACL tear that he sustained in November of last season. In fact, the Miami Herald's Barry Jackson and Adam Beasley report that the Dolphins are cautiously optimistic that Preston Williams will be ready for week one. And you may be wondering why all of this matters. After all, these guys are their third and fourth receivers. And Preston Williams is their second receiver. 
But I think that it's all great news for tight end Mike Jasicki. Albert Wilson was Miami's slot receiver last season when he was actually healthy. And he had a forgettable year. But in the final three games last season, he was fantasy relevant. Week 15, Albert Wilson, five catches on eight targets, 59 yards. Week 16, seven catches on seven targets, 79 yards. Week 17, five catches on eight targets for 59 yards. So definitely Albert Wilson was serviceable in that three-game span for PPR leagues at least. But here's why it's important. New offensive coordinator Chan Gailey runs a lot of spread concepts. and He puts three or four wide receivers on the field often. And tight end Mike Jasicki needs to be playing a big slot receiver role in order to really carry over his mini breakout down the stretch last season. Over the final seven games of last year, Jasicki, he played on 76% of the snaps and he was in the slot or at wide receiver on 78% of those snaps. So not playing really a traditional tight end role where he's in line and he uh, could go out for a pass or he could block. And then Jasicki in that span averaged 7.4 targets a game and scored five touchdowns. And Miami took zero receivers or tight ends in the draft. And this is all from a tweet from Adam Levitan at ETR. And Jasicki checks in at six foot six, 250 pounds. So he certainly has the size to create mismasses down the seam. He's a great athletic prospect. He's a better athlete than he is football player, at least I like to say. And if he plays that big slot receiver, it means that you're going to see a huge increase in snaps and targets. And even though his quarterback is Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua Tungavailoa, the opportunity exists for Jasicki to be productive because Devontae Parker is the only legitimate other receiving option, especially now that Alan Hearns and Albert Wilson are out. And yeah, so I mean, Albert Wilson's decision to opt out gives Jasicki an upper hand at being the Dolphins' kind of de facto slot receiver and thus obtain a bigger role in this offense, one that he saw down the stretch when he was tight end seven in the final seven games, I believe. So the fact that it's unclear if Preston Williams is going to open up the season, that's a positive for Devontae Parker's fantasy outlook. And Parker, he had stark contrast in splits with and without Preston Williams last season. You know, it was like a completely different player. With Preston Williams last year, in the eight games that he played with Preston Williams, 52 targets, 28 receptions, 400 yards, and four touchdowns, and he was PPR wide receiver 36. And in the eight games he played without Preston Williams, 76 targets, 44 catches, 802 yards. That's double the amount in the first eight games. Five touchdowns, and he was PPR wide receiver two. And a lot of people don't realize that. Devontae Parker in the final eight games last season was PPR wide receiver two, only behind Michael Thomas. So it's, it's unclear how much Preston Williams' absence really led to Devontae Parker's breakout because the Dolphins had a quarterback controversy for the first six-ish weeks of the season. And both Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh Rosen played a few games and they all played miserably. And there were reports that offensive coordinator Chad O'Shea's offense was so complex and confusing that players didn't know what the heck they were doing for a large portion of the season. So you can make the argument that Parker's breakout was less about Preston Williams' torn ACL and absence and more about Ryan Fitzpatrick and the offense finally clicking because the Dolphins did miraculously turn into a surprisingly good offense for the second half of last season. 
And they didn't just turn into a good offense because Preston Williams got hurt. That doesn't make any sense. But in summary, you know, no, no Albert Wilson, good news for Mike Jasicki. And Preston Williams not being at full strength, I think good news for Devontae Parker. And one thing I like about Devontae Parker, I've been doing some research into or some reading into Chan Gailey's past offenses. And the guy is old as dirt. And he's, he's like a dinosaur in this league. He's been around for so long. So we can kind of find trends in his past offenses that probably hold water. So offensive coordinators Chan Gailey's last six number one wide receivers in the last six seasons that he was a coordinator. And this is dating back to a while. Dwayne Bowe had 157 targets. Stevie Johnson, 141, 134, and 148 targets in those three seasons. And Brandon Marshall, 173 targets and 128 targets. In the last six seasons, Chan Gailey's number one receiver has definitely been fed. And again, this is from a while ago, but nevertheless, I think it shows a pattern that Devontae Parker may see a lot of targets in this offense. And those stats are brought to you by Ian Hartitz of ProFootballFocus.com. So I've been fading Miami Dolphins players in my mock drafts in general because of their quarterback situation and because of their 30th to 32nd ranked offensive line that I think is featuring five of five new starters. And there's, there's kind of an unwritten rule or strategy in the NFL draft where it's unwise to trade up for a player with an injury history or, or medical red flags. Teams hate investing future picks and trading up for somebody who they already deem as a, as a pretty risky investment. And I kind of like to take that approach and apply it to fantasy football, not with injuries though, but rather with players on bad teams, like with bad quarterback situations. Because if they post top 12 seasons, that's an exception to the rule. Or if a wide receiver or tight end posts a top 12 season with a horrible quarterback play, they're outliers. And it's not to say that this never happens. It's not to say that wide receivers with bad quarterbacks can't post top 12 fantasy seasons. I found through my research, at least in the last decade or so, that about one-fourth of top 12 performances at season's end from wide receivers come from quarterback situations that were deemed objectively or subjectively bad going into the season at least. And with running backs, I found that about one-third of the top 12 running backs each season come from losing teams, teams that were 7-9 and or worse. And the reasons seem obvious. It's harder to post fantasy production if you're a running back on a losing team because game script is not in your favor. When When you're winning, you're running the ball more. And PPR leagues have kind of clouded that a little and made it more likely for running backs on losing teams to be successful. I mean, look at Christian McCaffrey, the ultimate outlier last year. And my whole point is that if you want to make stronger bets, then you want to be drafting wide receivers and tight ends who come from good quarterback situations. And you want to be drafting running backs on good teams. But it doesn't mean that you should avoid you know, bad teams or bad quarterback situations altogether. But I brought up the NFL draft analogy for a reason because I don't like aggressively reaching for those players. I'm okay with it if they get back to cost if it, or if they slide a couple of rounds. Then I'm okay with it. It makes more sense to me to make that investment. But I certainly don't like reaching for players 
who are on bad teams with bad quarterback situations because the odds are against them. But I'll take Devontae Parker and Mike Jasicki at cost. Because of their draft price, their draft price are actually reasonable. Parker's average draft position right now is 60 overall. That's, that's, that's like round six. That makes him a really nice wide receiver two option if you go running back heavy early. And Mike Jasicki is tight end 15. There was some early offseason hype with Jasicki, like in April. I remember seeing him as a tight end 10 in a lot of places, but the experts have kind of cooled off a little. So he's very affordable now. I mean, even if Miami is bad, those two could be kind of garbage time kings. And we have a bunch of other training camp blurbs, puff pieces. And that's how you know training camp is here. When you start seeing all these reports from team beat writers about how player X arrived to camp in the best shape of his life, and he lost 5% of his body fat while gaining 15 pounds of muscle to bulk up for the season. He's probably a Popeye's biscuit away from being a tight end. And look, a lot of these reports can be taken with a grain of salt, usually, I would say. But this year is, is somewhat unique, as we know. And so, as I've mentioned before, I find it comforting at least hearing that a player is in great shape because we don't really know what a lot of these guys have been doing throughout the COVID offseason. Because they haven't had access to team facilities, and they didn't get mini camp or OTAs, and many couldn't work out in gyms or big groups because of state restrictions. So a lot of these players may show up with far worse conditioning than normal. So I'll fly through these reports, uh, but just file them away, store them in your mind, but there's no need to drastically alter your ranks for these puff pieces like Player X. You know, he just lost 10 pounds because... He did P90X offseason and stopped eating McDonald's. You know, it's a factor. It's a factor among many to consider. So the first one is Kyler Murray, who reportedly bulked up to 10 to 15 pounds this offseason to better withstand the rigors of the NFL season. This is a common one. We see it with a bunch of guys every year. Murray's size was a concern coming out of Oklahoma, and he did sustain a hamstring injury late in the season that caused him to fade down the stretch from a production standpoint. I mentioned that he actually lost five points a game in his final five games last year. Like weeks one through uh, 12, Murray was averaging about 17 points per game at about QB8 pace. In the final five games, he only averaged about 12 points a game. And that brought him down to, I I believe it was QB13 in points per game for the full season. Oftentimes, players who have great speed, you know, as one of their best assets like Murray does, bulking up can be a bad thing because the added weight can cause them to lose speed. But I think with Murray being a quarterback, it's probably a good thing. I think it will help him stay healthy. So Jets, Coach Adam Gase. The world. Said that Le'Veon Bell is extremely motivated and is in phenomenal shape. And this kind of lines up with the athletics. Connor Hughes, he reported that Bell has been training like a madman this offseason. And Gase said that Bell has been working extremely hard and looks really good. And this is noteworthy because of Gase's and Bell's kind of rocky relationship. But I'm actually going to save my commentary on this for later in the show. And if you read the title of the show, I apologize for the spoiler alert. But the next one is Coach... Bruce Arians said Ronald Jones is the main guy in the Bucks' backfield. And Arians, you know, he said everybody else, whether it's LaShawn McCoy, Daria Agumawale, Keyshawn Vaughn, is fighting for roles. Vaughn is on the COVID-19 list, and he's falling behind in the early stages of camps. And Arians said that McCoy should find his niche easily. 
And I've talked about this Tampa Bay backfield ad nauseum. I feel like I spend some portion of every episode discussing Ronald Jones at some point. I swear people are going to start thinking I'm obsessed with talking crap about this guy. Part of it is because, however, I'm just reporting to you guys what the fantasy expert community is talking about. And, and Rojo is a very popularly, popular, that is a tough word to say, popularly debated player among the experts. And his average draft position, you know, declined after the Sean McCoy news, but now it's soaring now. Now that Bruce Arians called him the main guy. Uh, because this, to me, at least implies that LaShawn McCoy was perhaps brought in for competition to play on passing downs, a.k.a. to compete with Dari Gumbwale's role and not necessarily steal touches from Ronald Jones. So his ADP has climbed around 7, and this news is so recent that we could legit start seeing Jones being drafted in around 6. And I get it, you know, especially in non-PPR leagues. Lead back, Tom Brady, Bucks offense, you know, double-digit touchdown upside, it's there. But I'm probably going to be fading the hype if he gets to round six. You know, Bruce Arians has been no stranger to offseason puff pieces that have not come to fruition. So let's move on. Marquise Brown gained 23 pounds this offseason, allegedly, I should say, and is up to 180, 180 pounds after playing 157 as a rookie. So Brown weighed in at 166 in the pre-draft process, and... He's obviously put on some serious weight. And wide receiver, his teammate Willie Sneed said that he looks to be in phenomenal shape. And I just spoke about how players who rely on their speed, it's not always a positive that they bulk up. In fact, it's usually a negative for somebody like Marquise Brown. Uh, but Brown thinks that he can keep his speed with the added baggage, the added muscle mass. So Brown said that he actually had the Ravens send him a GPS tracker to make sure he wasn't losing any of his speed. Although I do find it curious that he mentioned that he was sent the GPS tracker to make sure he wasn't losing any speed, but he did not say, you know, I've been using the GPS tracker to track my speed and I haven't lost any. And those are two different things. Those things are not the same. But maybe that's the attorney in me kind of overanalyzing his statements here and, and trying to be more clear. But the fact that Brown played at 157 pounds last year is so crazy to me because that's actually my exact weight. I am 5'8", 157. And as somebody who's been trying to bulk up and actually gain weight, I'm very skeptical that Marquise Brown gained 23 pounds. You know, And if he did, I'm, I'm skeptical that it was in the most healthy way possible. I mean, it's really easy to gain 23 pounds of even muscle slash fat if you're eating everything in sight and working out. It's very difficult to gain 23 pounds in six months if you're actually eating well. You have to eat so much. And I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a health expert. I take it seriously, but I'm not certified or anything like that. And I, do, I certainly don't have Marquise Brown's resources. Like maybe he hired a personal trainer and a chef, although I think he would have mentioned that. But, you know, maybe he has the works. But this situation is le at least somewhat familiar to me as a small statured person, you know, I, I just think the most interesting thing about this is, you know, that he's up to 180 pounds. And that's actually the, what's so compelling about it is that that's the exact threshold that I used in my arguments against Marquise Brown two episodes ago when I gave a full breakdown on Brown listing all the positives and negatives. And I mentioned specifically that Adam Levitan of EstablishTheRun.com tracked that, that no wide receiver under 180 pounds 
has had a top 12 fantasy wide receiver season since 2012 and 180 pounds of the threshold. And now Marquise Brown's over here saying that, oh, don't worry, I'm 180 pounds. I fit the threshold. I can be a top 12 receiver now. So it's, it's like he was reading it, uh, reading Avin Leviton's tweet, listening to this podcast. I wish. But, you know, if you, if you have any interest in Marquise Brown this season, you absolutely should go check out that episode. You know, I won't get into everything here, but Brown, you know, we did a deep dive in that episode and he's hit the threshold of 180 pounds allegedly, but will that affect his great, greatest asset? We will see. But it's more off-season hype for Marquise Brown. So the next one is Austin Hooper said that he spent two to three weeks in Austin, Texas, at Baker Mayfield's house working out together this offseason. And look, I'm not too high on Austin Hooper this year. Tight ends who change teams, especially big money free agent deals, you know, they don't have a nice history of panning out with their new teams in year one. And the Browns are going to be very committed to running the ball under Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, which is the exact opposite approach of what went on in Atlanta where Austin Hooper broke out last year. Atlanta led the NFL in pass attempts last season. He also gets a major quarterback downgrade from Matt Ryan to Baker Mayfield. And Hooper had developed chemistry with Matt Ryan for three years now. And Kevin Stefanski used two tight end approach Last season in Minnesota, Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith, you know, kind of capped each other's upside because they split the work, and the Browns could do that with David Njoku or Harrison Bryant, who they drafted in round four. Very talented prospect. So Austin Hooper, his average draft position, tight end 13 right now. So it's not like you have to pay an arm and leg to get him. And I like that he's not resting on that big contract that he signed, and he's putting in the work with his new quarterback. But they're just other late-round tight ends that I prefer. Uh, next bit of news, Deontay Johnson declared himself 100% following the offseason sports hernia surgery that he had. That's good news for him. He was hyped up as much as anyone in the expert community earlier this offseason, like in March, April. But the experts have cooled on him, and his average draft position now just sits at 98. So still sleeper territory here. And I thought for a long period of time, his ADP was going to get so high, like in around six or seven, that he was going to really be undraftable. But as long as he stays affordable, you know, I'm I'm interested in Deontay Johnson. And then the last bit of news, I believe, yeah, last bit here, Raiders offensive coordinator Greg Olson said that first-round wide receiver Henry Ruggs will start in the slot. And this is actually a big one for fantasy, or at least it's larger than meets the eye, I should say. Because it tells me two things. First, it means that the Raiders are making a concerted effort to get Brian Edwards on the field. And he was their third-round pick. He's 6'3", 212, four-year starter at South Carolina. And from everything I've heard, the team is extremely high on this guy. They felt like he was a steal in round three. So we may see two rookies, you know, Ruggs and Brian Edwards, start for the Raiders at wide receiver. And Tyrell Williams... Their number one receiver last year is in the mix as well. So this is definitely, the second takeaway here is this is definitely bad news for Hunter Renfro, who was supposed to be the all-time slot receiver for this team. Remember how you played backyard football when you were young and there was always that guy who wanted to be all-time quarterback? Well, Hunter Renfro was going to be all-time slot receiver for this team. And he's a guy that I actually liked as a late-round target in PPR formats uh, he was for sure going to appear on my wide receiver sleeper list for my draft guide this year. And he's a guy that Derek Carr 
liked a lot late last season. Hunter Renfro in his last seven games uh, that he played, weeks 8 through 12, and then he had a large rated kidney, but weeks 8 through 12 and weeks 16 and 17. Hunter Renfro averaged 15.43 PPR points per game, and that's wide receiver 17 pace. And he's being drafted like wide receiver 50-ish or something along those lines. And in the final two games, week 16 and 17, Renfro was the sixth best wide receiver both of those weeks. He had seven catches for 107 and one touchdown in week 16, and six catches for 102 and a touch in week 17. So strong finish there, and Renfro had a quietly efficient season as well. Evan Silva tweeted that Renfro was 11th of 86 NFL wide receivers in yards per route run. Number two among rookie wide receivers in yards per route run. He had a 74 catch, 1,008 yards, and eight touchdown full season pace over his last eight games. He was number two among NFL receivers in average yards uh, of separation per target. Number five among NFL wide receivers in yards after catch per reception. And 15th of 86 NFL receivers in passer rating when targeted. He also led the Raiders in red zone receptions with eight and led the Raiders in targets inside the 10-yard line despite his small stature. And that's from Evan Silva at ETR. And it's just such a great tweet. So many positive things leaning towards kind of breakout season for Hunter Renfro. And I was thinking he could parlay that strong finish uh, into 2020 and be a fantasy diamond in the rough for at least for PPR formats. But then the Raiders added a ton of pass-catching competition this offseason, and it looks like, based on this new information that we're receiving, you always have to adjust. It looks like the Raiders want Renfro to be more of a role player rather than a full-time safety blanket in the slot for Derek Carr. So I I think that covers everything. It's It's a lot of news, but now let's talk about some AFC players who I am not drafting this year. All right, let's get to the main event here, which is my AFC players that I am avoiding at cost. And the first one is, drumroll please, Leonard Fournette. And you may have been able to predict that he was going to be on this list if you've been listening to this podcast. I've spoken at length about him already, and I will do so again today. Leonard Fournette, average draft position, 28th overall. So beginning of round three. And I think that is far too rich for a player with a ton of question marks. There are arguments for drafting Leonard Fournette. He is due positive touchdown regression. He had three touchdowns last year. He was extremely unlucky in the touchdown department. Mike Clay, uh, the creator of Opportunity Touchdowns, OTD, said that based on Leonard Fournette's workload last season, he should have had 9.3 touchdowns rather than three. And touchdowns are a non-sticky stat. They fluctuate from year to year very easily. So Fournette, who was RB7 last year, could easily you know, have 12 touchdowns next year if he sustained the same workload and be like a league winner. But I don't think he will be. Because other than touchdowns, everything went right for Leonard Fournette last season. Going into last season, Leonard Fournette was deemed one of the biggest health risks in the NFL. Nobody thought that this guy was going to stay healthy. And he not only stayed healthy, he played 15 games, just sat out the season finale, but he saw so much opportunity that he played at least 50 snaps in every single game except for week 11 where he logged 44 snaps. 
This guy received massive usage as a bell cow, but his past chronic injuries, his past history of injuries did not just suddenly disappear. Lino Fournette had 341 touches last year, and it was by far the highest amount of touches in his NFL career or his college career. It's the 12th most among touches in the last among running backs in the last five seasons. And if you look at the history of those guys with 300-plus touches, it's not pretty. And Fournette, again, just had a very injury-plagued NFL career and college career. So the odds of him staying healthy, again, are slim. You know, we're going law of averages here. And even if he does stay healthy, the odds of him receiving that loaded of a snap count are also very slim. Leonard Fournette, 19.5% of Fournette's rushing yardage came in one game. And he was the 47th highest graded running back per pro football focus last year. He was not efficient. He averaged 3.9 yards a carry last year. And now the Jaguars have added a new offensive coordinator who's one of the more pass-happy offensive coordinators in, in all of football in Jay Gruden. And you may be thinking, oh, well, that's okay because Fournette saw 100 targets last year and caught 75 passes. Well, I don't think he comes anywhere close to that this season. Fournette was extremely inefficient as a receiver. He just simply wasn't good. He, was, he ranked 181st out of 199 qualifiers in fantasy points per target in 2019. And last year, the Jags had gotten rid of TJ Yelton. So Fournette was the only guy. So he was forced to be the receiver on passing downs as running back. And that's one of the reasons I really liked him last year. But the Jaguars specifically went out this year and added competition for passing downs. They selected Colorado wide receiver LaVisca Chenault with the 40 seconds overall pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. And he is a running back slash wide receiver that the Jaguars are going to be using very close to the line of scrimmage. And he's definitely going to cut into Lino Fournette's passing down role. And the Jaguars also signed running back Chris Thompson, who all he can do, he's a pass catching down specialist. And he'll be rejoining offensive coordinator Jay Gruden. And and Chris Thompson has played with Jay Gruden, knows his offense, played with him under Jay Gruden for five years. And I think he's going to push Fournette for for third down duties immediately. So even if those running backs don't play as big of a role in the passing games that I expect them to, Fournette is going to lose targets just simply because Gardner Minshew is under center. Last year, Fournette's target share dropped from 21% to 15% when Gardner Minshew was playing rather than Nick Foles. And one of the reasons for that is because when Gardner Minshew probably wants to check it down, He looks to scramble, not check it down to the running back. And the Jaguars absolutely, I mean, Lina Fournette, rather, absolutely has to be playing passing downs this year if he he wants to be a good fantasy pick. Because the Jaguars are going to be so terrible. They're going to be in contention for the number one overall pick in next year's draft. Vegas has the Jaguars as the the worst over-under in wins. So if Fournette loses passing down work to these guys, you know, it would be crippling because the Jags are rarely going to be having positive game scripts for Leonard Fournette to run. They're going to be trailing and they're going to be playing catch up often. And therefore, Fournette may be on the bench and seeding passing downs to these other players who are more equipped to handle this type of work. 
And the Jaguars also actively tried to shop Leonard Fournette before April's NFL draft, and they couldn't find any takers. And Fournette could be traded at midseason for like a seventh-round swap, like a salary dump. It also wouldn't shock me if the tanking Jaguars just released him. And and still, despite all that uncertainty and all those red flags, Fournette is going 28th overall in fantasy drafts, round three. And I, for one, don't want to be spending my third-round pick on somebody who could so easily get phased out of this offense. And I think that his ADP is truly bewildering. It's wild to me. So I'll get to the next one. A player going a few spots right after Leonard Fournette is Le'Veon Bell. And he's actually in a very similar situation. Le'Veon Bell due for some positive touchdown regression after only scoring four times on over 300 touches last year. So his ADP of 37 overall in the fourth round, it seems reasonable. You know, he should be the bell cow back. And, and I mentioned in some positive news, some positive coach speak from Adam Gase when talking about how, what great a shape Le'Veon Bell was in. I'm also going to remind everybody about their rocky relationship. In the past, this offseason, Coach Adam Gase has said, I do think we have some guys that can help maybe lessen the load on Le'Veon Bell where it's not all on him. He even said that a good one-two punch where we can really excel instead of feeling like it's all on him all the time. Adam Gase was also at one point this offseason, he was asked a couple months ago if Le'Veon Bell would remain the Jets' 2020 starter at running back. And instead of just saying yes, he replied, ask general manager Joe Douglas tomorrow. Speaking of Joe Douglas, later on, he admitted that the team will listen to Le'Veon Bell trade offers this offseason. And this report was substantiated or corroborated by Rich Samini, ESPN NFL Nation reporter for the Jets. He said that if the Jets are out of contention by midseason, they will probably look to shop Le'Veon Bell at the trading deadline. And then there's the Frank Gore situation. I just talked about how Adam Gase may see a one, may want a one-two punch. He may prefer that. Well, Gase reportedly tried bringing in Frank Gore last offseason before they signed Le'Veon Bell. And they signed him this offseason, but before they did that, Frank Gore turned down an offer from the Raiders just to join the Jets because of his familiarity and his somehow his liking of Adam Gase. So Frank Gore, just a plotter, and logically it wouldn't seem like he could compete with Le'Veon Bell for touches. But he had the goal line role for Buffalo last year, and he's played under Adam Gase before. They obviously like each other. And they trust each other. And that was one of the main reasons Gore wanted to go be a New York Jet. And Gore's such a coach pleaser. He does everything right in practice, rarely makes mistakes in games. He's a leader, amazing work ethic. Coaches always wind up giving Gore a bigger role than fantasy managers care for. And he could easily be an annoying little pest for Le'Veon Bell drafters, especially with Adam Gase running the show. And speaking of Adam Gase, Gase always reminds me of slow pace. Because that's exactly how he runs his offenses. According to Pat Thorman of ETR, Adam Gase, number of plays run, that ranking in the last five years, 28th, 32nd, 22nd, 32nd, 18th. And the pace that they play at, the pace that the Jets have played at, the amount of time that it took for them to uh, snap the ball once the play clock started, 21st, 32nd, 29th, 31st and 27th in the last five years. 
So they play a very slow-paced offense that does not run a lot of plays. The Jets have five new offensive line starters in an offseason where they weren't able to even really practice together. And Le'Veon Bell, you know, needs a good offensive line. He's such a patient runner because his style requires a strong offensive line for him to excel. Like he had in Pittsburgh. And his biggest strength is his patience and his vision and, and, and letting the blockers set up in front of him. But in New York, the holes just never opened up last year. And you may argue, hey, it can't be any worse. But it might not be better either. Again, none of these guys have ever played together before. So even if the talent is improved, they're going to lack continuity which is in communication, which is so important on an offensive line. And the Jets could be like the Jaguars, one of the worst teams in the NFL. And if they're 1-7 or 2-6 and six heading into the trade deadline, they may try to dump Bell in an effort to tank. And piggybacking off that, they also have a brutal schedule. One where Warren Sharp, schedule guru for fantasy football, he rates as the league's third hardest. They, they open at Buffalo, then against San Francisco, and then at Indianapolis before a short week matchup uh, against the Broncos. So you're not likely to get a, a, a hot start. And I just think that there's too many risks associated with Le'Veon Bell. I acknowledge the upside exists. I acknowledge that there's positives to his outlook. Darnold will be healthier this year. He doesn't have mono. And Le'Veon Bell... Is excels in the passing game. He could be a garbage time PPR machine. But more likely than not, this is a situation that ends poorly. And not necessarily because Bell himself. I do think Bell is going to work hard to have a bounce back year. And I do still believe in his talent somewhat. But as a running back, you can only do so much to come to overcome a shitful situation. So let's move on to the next one. Cortland Sutton. And his ADP 47th overall. And that is round four, uh, late round four. And it's actually 39th overall in ESPN. He has him higher, extremely high for Cortland Sutton. First of all, Cortland Sutton, the reason that ADP strikes me as insane, or I shouldn't say insane, but really surprising, eye-opening, I should say, is because last year he wasn't that great. I mean, he was a great real-life player, but for fantasy football he only averaged 13.9 points per game. Wide receiver, 28 pace. So the fact that he's going 39th overall in ESPN when last year he had this career year and he was still wide receiver 28 in points per game, that's that's pretty confusing. I mean, it's confounding. I, I don't really get it. And Cortland Sutton, you know, you may be thinking, oh, well, that's because he was dealing with a crappy quarterback situation. Well, he was, but we don't know if that's changed or not. Drew Locke, is is a wild card. I mean, he's an unknown. And in the five games with Drew Locke last season, weeks 13 through 17, Cortland Sutton averaged eight targets a game, 4.4 catches a game, 56 yards a game, and 0.4 touchdowns. His 62 total points in five games amounted to 12.4 points per game, and that's wide receiver 39 pace. So it was only a five-game sample, and Rock Locke was a rookie. It was his first start, but he was worse with Drew Locke on that five-game sample than he was with Brandon Allen and Joe Flacco. Cortland Sutton, according to Matthew Barry, only had three games with more than five catches. So he relies on these big plays, and he was great at getting them last season with a bad quarterback situation, of course, but he was the guy last year for the Broncos. And, the, and Denver added a ton of competition for targets. Look what they've done this offseason. They've revamped the entire offense, the skill positions. They drafted wide receivers in rounds one and two, and Jerry Judy 
from Alabama in round one. KJ Hamler, the speedster out of Penn State in round two. Really good prospects there. And then Melvin Gordon, who's kind of been a touchdown machine over his career, was brought in at running back. And he's no slouch in the passing game as well. And at tight end, Noah Fant enters year two after a strong rookie year. And I, and I mentioned we don't know anything. We can't make assumptions that Drew Locke can support all these guys. We have no idea what Locke is going to be. You know, kudos for Cortland Sutton for having an outstanding second season, but his round four ADP is, is rather lofty for a player with so many supporting cast question marks. And sometimes fading somebody in fantasy isn't even about the player themselves. Their wide receivers going near Sutton's ADP. You know, Tyler Lockett, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, Calvin Ridley, DK Metcalf. A.J. Brown, uh, even arguments for Devontae Parker, D.J. Chark, T.Y. Hilton, A.J. Green, Scary Terry. All of them just sound like more attractive options to me than Cortland Sutton. So yeah, I'm out on Sutton this year, if not for his situation himself, but for that reason alone, is that I like the players going around him a lot better. So let's get to the next one. The next one's also a wide receiver going around Cortland Sutton's range, who I didn't mention because I wouldn't prefer him, and that's Keenan Allen. 48th overall is his ADP. And again, this is a situation that I hate because I hate fading obvious proven talent. And that's what Keenan Allen is because that can make you really look like a huge fool. But this is a scenario where the Chargers are going to be such a low-volume passing attack, and Terod Taylor at quarterback, Taylor is going to make this offense very run-oriented. And the Chargers are going to use Taylor's mobility on read options, and they're going to play at a very slow pace, and they're going to win games by their running game and by playing great defense. At least that's the plan. And Keenan Allen has made a living on on volume with Phillip Rivers. He averaged 9.25 targets per game across the last season, according to Hayden Winks of Roto World. And no one would be surprised if the Chargers finished last in passing attempts this season. And there's an inevitable quarterback controversy on the horizon as well. Justin Herbert will come in at some point, and he'll probably look pretty raw out there, if I had to guess. And even if you can get past the major downgrade at quarterback from Rivers to Herbert slash Terod Taylor, there's so many talented pieces of the pass-catching pie in Los Angeles. Mike Williams will be used for big plays and in the red zone. He's in a contract year. Keenan Allen has never scored a ton of touchdowns. He has a 4.4 career touchdown rate. And Hunter Henry is going to be fully healthy this year, presumably. He missed games last year. And Allen's Keenan Allen's target share dropped from 11.0 targets a game Without, Keen, uh, without Hunter Henry playing, to 8.3 targets a game in the games that Henry did play, according to Hayden Winks of RotoWorld.com. And Austin Eckler was also a PPR monster last season. He'll be used out of the backfield as well. So while I love Keenan Allen's game, this is a situation that is not conducive to fantasy points. The opportunity just is not there. Allen should have a lot of games where he catches you know, four passes for 56 yards. So next one, Devin Singletary, 49th overall is where he's going. And this is a similar situation to Cortland Sutton, in my opinion, because I think a lot of people are overrating 
how good Devin Singletary was in fantasy football last year. Yeah, he was great in real life. He averaged like 5.2 yards a carry, extremely efficient, came out of nowhere, really provided a spark for the Bills offense. But nevertheless, you know, fantasy production, it just wasn't really there. In Devin Singletary's final seven games, and this was when he was the lead back after he took over for Frank Gore, he averaged at least, no, he had at least 16 touches in each of the final seven games. Devin Singletary still only averaged 13.18 points per game. That was RB21 pace. That, to me, is his upside. And yet he's still going 49th overall. So early fifth round. And I, I just don't think we're getting to those numbers. I, I don't see how the Bills replaced Frank Gore and drafted Zach Moss, who is a better version of Frank Gore, at least last season. And Moss is going to be much more effective uh, in the running game and in the receiving game than Gore was. So Singletary, you know, unlikely to get carries inside the five-yard line because of his small stature. And Zach Moss is much bigger. And his touchdown upside is so capped, especially because Josh Allen is already there. And Josh Allen has nine rushing touchdowns in both years as a pro. And Singletary, he was not used a lot as a wide receiver last season either. He only had 29 catches, despite Frank Gore being a zero in the passing game. And that might be because of Josh Allen's playing style. Maybe, you know, he's looking to run rather than check down. But Zach Moss, you know, capable receiver in college, he could play on passing downs too. He could cut into that workload. And the Bills had the same investment in Singletary and Moss, same draft capital investment. They were both third-round picks. So to me, this has a thunder and lightning vibe to it where both running backs are going to split the work evenly or even rotate series. But Zach Moss is going in the hundreds of ADP, while Devin Singletary's in the 45ths. And this is not necessarily even like a, oh yeah, you should definitely draft Zach Moss kind of situation. This is more like they should both be around the 70s or 80s, you know, 20 or 30 spots lower than Devin Singletary's 49th overall uh, average draft position. You know, Devin Singletary, he, even if he gets the majority of the work between the 20s and he fins off Zach Moss there, even then, you know, Moss and Josh Allen's goal line usage caps the rushing touchdown ceiling of Devin Singletary and thus his upside. Singletary, you know, beginning around five, no thanks. I mean, this is a hard pass. So moving on to the next one, Darren Waller, tight end five. And this is somewhat of a controversial one because everyone loves Darren Waller. I love Darren Waller. Darren Waller, you know, I mentioned my number one sleeper tight end last year. A lot of these guys, actually, if you'll notice, you know, Leonard Fournette, Darren Waller, Devin Singletary, I was really high on last year. But fantasy football, fantasy football changes year in and year out. Every year is different. And oftentimes when a player breaks out, their draft cost is correspondingly too high the next season. Players' careers often go in waves where they have a down season and then everyone's down on them and then you can take advantage of that uh, draft discount and then they have a career year and they're being drafted too high. So everyone's high on Darren Waller after last year's breakout season out of nowhere, but it's possible we just missed the boat and it's possible he could be worse this year. And the evidence suggests that he will. Darren Waller, first six games, averaged 8.33 targets a game, 6.66. Oh, yikes. That, that's a bad omen right there.
6.66 catches per game, 80 yards a game, and two touchdowns in his first six games. That's on. That is. That is outstanding, and it led to 17.53 points per game in his first 16. That's more than Travis Kelsey averaged last season. But then in his final seven games, when Hunter Renfro, who I spoke about earlier, became more active in this offense and started playing, got a huge snap increase. Final seven games with Hunter Renfro, weeks 8 through 12, and weeks 16 and 17, Darren Waller only averaged 3.57 catches a game, 52 yards a game, and he scored one touchdown in those games on only 5.7 targets in that span. That's seven-game span, not a small sample size, and only 9.63 fantasy points per game. A far cry from his first 16 games where he was 17.53 points per game. And Hunter Renfro is not going anywhere. He's still on the team. Well, actually, the Raiders did say that you know he wouldn't be the full-time slot receiver. They alluded to that. But... Hunter Renfro is still on the team, and what's more more important than that, they added, look at all the investments that the Raiders made to their passing game. They added Henry Ruggs. The first team to take a wide receiver in the draft was the, was the Raiders at 12 or overall when they took Alabama's Henry Ruggs. And then they drafted Lynn Bowden, who's a running back slash wide receiver. They listed him as a running back when they drafted him, but he's going to be playing, catching a, a ton of passes, I'm sure, near the line of scrimmage. They're going to be using him as an offensive weapon. Brian Edwards, I talked about him earlier. The Raiders love this guy. Third-round pick, Brian Edwards. He's going to start for this team, it looks like. They also added Nelson Aguilar for death. And they added Jason Witten. And you might be rolling your eyes saying, oh, Jason Witten? You know, that guy is old as dirt. He's not going to affect Darren Waller. Well, a lot of people said that about Blake Jarwin sleeper appeal last season in Dallas. And if you're thinking about your, if you're thinking to yourself right now, who the heck is Blake Jarwin? That's exactly my point. Blake Jarwin was supposed to be this huge sleeper of a tight end in Dallas. He's supposed to really emerge as the guy, and he did nothing last year because Jason Witten, after coming out of retirement, 38-year-old Jason Witten played 75% of Dallas's snaps last year and kicked Blake Jarwin to the curb. And Jarwin's no slouch of a talent either. Coaches respect Jason Witten. He's a leader. He knows how to run routes well. He's a veteran. And this is a young Raiders team. Mike Mayock is going to love Jason Witten. And you could easily see him cut into Darren Waller's snaps, especially from a blocking standpoint. And another player who's still in Oakland. Oh, excuse me. That was the first, you know, that was the first time I actually messed up the Oakland situation. Another player who's in Vegas is actually now, I guess, their third string tight end, Foster Moreau, out of LSU. And he, you know, he whapped some touchdowns last year from Darren Waller. Darren Waller, and that's another point that I wanted to make that a lot of the experts are saying, but wait, Darren Waller due for positive touchdown regression. He only scored three times last year. But I'm not so sure about that. Darren Waller was targeted only four times inside the 10-yard line last year, and three of those were actually touchdown catches. So I don't think the positive touchdown regression argument is is as strong as people think. And even if you support that argument, which, sure, I can get behind it. I'm not dismissing it. I would bet that Waller scores more than three times next year. He could even double it to six touchdowns. But with the added competition... He's not getting anywhere near, anywhere close to 117 targets, 90 catches, and 1,145 receiving yards 
five 100-yard games. He's not getting anywhere close to those numbers with all that added competition. And it's also, it's not like Derek Carr is throwing for 5,000 yards and can support all these pass catchers either. Derek Carr is one of the most conservative and risk-averse quarterbacks in the NFL. He's a great game manager. That's what he is. We've seen enough of Derek Carr to make that connection, to, to confidently say that he's a great game manager. He's not bad, but he's not good for fantasy football. He's just not. And to that note, to the game manager note, the Raiders, according to Pat Thorman, ran the ninth fewest plays in neutral situations last year, and they operated the seventh slowest pace while passing at the fourth lowest rate in neutral situations last year. And I haven't even mentioned Josh Jacobs, but that's what that alludes to right there, is that the Raiders don't want Derek Carr to be the focal point of this offense. They can bring all the passing weapons they want in, but at the end of the day, the Raiders want Josh Jacobs to be the focal point and not Derek Carr. And there are just so many mouths to feed. I love Darren Waller, but he's being severely, severely overdrafted. So let's get to the next one. Jarvis Landry, 69th overall ADP. You know, Last year, Jarvis Landry had a good season. And I was down on Landry last year. I had no shares of him, no exposure to Jarvis Landry. And he was quietly good. He had a midseason stretch that helped a lot of people get into the fantasy playoffs. He averaged 14.8 points per game in 16 games, wide receiver 22 pace. However, that was kind of a best-case scenario for Jarvis Landry last year. I mean, think about it. You can say all you want about the Browns being a dumpster fire, but for Jarvis Landry, that was kind of, everything kind of went right for Jarvis Landry. First of all, he was completely healthy. And Odell Beckham was not. Odell Beckham was playing hurt. He wasn't 100% at any point last season. Kareem Hunt missed the first eight games. David Njoku, tight end, missed almost all of last season. And now we have a situation where Odell, Odell Beckham is healthy, reportedly at least. Kareem Hunt will be there for a full 16. David Njoku's back. The team broke the bank for adding tight end Austin Hooper. Largest contract for a tight end in NFL history at the time. And Kevin Stefanski, new coach, comes over from Minnesota where he was one of the most run-heavy coaches in the NFL last season for the Vikings. And the running game is his specialty. And every move that the Browns have made this offseason, whether it was drafting offensive tackle Jarek Wills in round one or signing right tackle Jack Conklin, uh, one of the best run blockers in the NFL, or signing a fullback, Everything that they've done indicates that they want to be a smash-mouth, run-oriented team. And the Browns also project to be better this season. So game scripts will be less favorable for Jarvis Landry in the passing game. And none of that, none of what I've said, if you've already thinking to yourself, oh, wow, you know, maybe Landry is a fade. None of that is even the strongest argument to avoid Jarvis Landry at cost in drafts. The strongest argument to avoid Jarvis Landry in drafts is because Jarvis Landry is coming off a major surgery that nobody is talking about. Jarvis Landry had all-season hip surgery in February, and it's a fact that is seemingly going completely ignored by even the fantasy football expert community. It's a massive deal. He's, he, at the time, he was expected to be sidelined for six to eight months. That was his timeline on his February 4th operation date. So let's do the math here. Six months from February 4th, I believe is, what I, I believe is August 4th. 
So right about now, that's the early portion of his six to eight month timetable for his hip surgery. Seven months is September 4th, so right in the middle, if my math is right, that is. And that makes eight months, the end of the table, the end of the timetable for his surgery is October 4th. October 4th. And I know I'm an injury pessimist, so I'm obviously leaning towards the eight months, but come on, why is nobody talking about this? I think he's very questionable for week one. And even if he plays, it sounds like he's not going to be 100% until October. And what's the risk of re-injury on this type of thing, the re-aggravation to the hip surgery? I, I have no idea, and I certainly have no interest in finding out by drafting Jarvis Landry at his ADP in round six. So let's move on to the last one here. Julian Edelman, 72nd overall, 72 overall pick, average draft position. And look, I give mad props to Julian Edelman for being a warrior last season. Adam Schefter reported that Edelman played through most of 2019 with partially torn rib cartilage, and he suffered it in week three or something like that. And Edelman was also, he had left knee tendonitis and he was just really banged up. He had a separated AC joint in his left shoulder. And both of those injuries required off-season surgery. So you know they're significant. But nevertheless, Edelman played a full 16 games. He rarely does that. And he had a career-high receiving yards last year with 1,117. Edelman was a top 10 receiver in, uh, in finish. And I think he was a top 15 receiver in points per game last year. He kind of faded down the stretch because of all the injuries added up. But, but nevertheless, you know, I give him props for all that. But this analysis is going to be real simple of why you should not draft Julian Edelman at cost. It's 72 overall or even near it. You ready for this simple analysis right here? Tom Brady is no longer Julian Edelman's quarterback. Seriously, that's my analysis. That's it. Edelman lost Tom Brady this year, so he projects to be worse. And sometimes fantasy football is easy. It doesn't always have to be hard. And I think this is one of those times. Julian Edelman has spent the last decade getting nine targets a game from Tom Brady in this great offense. And, and, and Tom Brady, the quarterback who made him famous, the quarterback who made even using players like Edelman famous, these little quick, precise slot receivers with Wes Welker and Edelman, this was groundbreaking stuff. And this was for Tom Brady. No quarterback had really done this. And this was a Tom Brady signature, signature special. Edelman has been Tom Brady's security blanket for years. He always knows, Tom Brady always knows where Julian Edelman's going to be on the field at all times. They've worked together for like nearly a decade. They're best friends. They love each other. And their little special love connection is a huge part of what makes Edelman so valuable in fantasy football. And now Tom Brady is gone. And we know this. This isn't breaking news. I'm not blowing your mind right now. You're not sitting here listening to this thinking, oh, wow, you know, Nick, wow, thanks for this great analysis right here. I never thought about that. You're probably sitting there just nodding your head, just going about your day thinking, duh, Nick, you know, this isn't rocket science. Yeah, Tom Brady's not there anymore. Edelman's going to be worse. So answer me this. Why is Edelman still being drafted in round six or even round seven? Explain it to me like I'm five years old. Edelman has a new quarterback and it's Cam Newton. 
And I think some people are just associating that as, oh yeah, Cam Newton, you know, he's going to be pretty good when he's healthy. And, and I can believe that too. I can get down with that. But in case you aren't aware, Cam Newton is not Tom Brady. And more, what I mean by that is that he doesn't play like Tom Brady. He's not peppering his slot receiver with pristine timing routes. That's not Cam Newton's MO. Even if he is healthy, that's not where he wins. Edelman was also the only option in the passing game last year for New England. Nikhil Harry, their first-round pick in 2019, basically missed the season with an injury last year. He's ready to roll. Mohamed Sanu, who the Pats traded a second-round pick for in the middle of the season, who also plays in the slot at some times. You know, he's now healthy. James White's still there in the backfield. Cam Newton, you know, when he doesn't see his first or second read open, he's not going to know where Julian Edelman is at all times and check down to him. He doesn't have that luxury of familiarity with Julian Edelman and his offense. So when things aren't open downfield, he's going to just take off and run. Cam Newton's going to do what he does best. So I'm not saying Edelman's just going to be completely worthless and ignored by Cam Newton. He probably will be the Patriots' best receiver, but Cam Newton is not Tom Brady. And Julian Edelman's bread is buttered by Tom Brady. That's what she said. (laughs) Michael. Michael. Michael, please. This just feels like a 60-catch, 700-yard, five-touchdown season for Edelman, and his ceiling isn't much higher than that, and that's not what I'm looking for in round six. This is a situation where name recognition is controlling the narrative. So let your league mates think that they are stealing Edelman in round seven. And that'll conclude my AFC players to avoid. And I'm sure more will be added as August progresses. I do have some honorable mentions. Philip Lindsay, Marlon Mack. Matt Breida. ADPs are 94, 100, and 103 overall, respectively. And I think those ADPs are absolute atrocities like 50 spots too high. They're definitely going to be in my do not draft list as a result. And you can actually, I've already went on long rants about each of these players. You can check out my rankings disagreement episodes, episodes eight and nine of this podcast series uh, for why you should be avoiding Philip Lindsay, Marlon Mack, and Matt Breida in your fantasy football drafts. So give that a listen if you have not already, and let's close out with a nugget. Today's fantasy nugget of the show comes from Jared Samola of DraftSharks.com. Here it is. Christian Kirk scored 37.8 PPR points in Week 10 last year against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' 32nd-ranked wide receiver defense. In his other 12 games, Kirk averaged only 10.7 PPR points. That would have ranked 52nd among wide receivers. Is Christian Kirk going to be in my NFC players to avoid? We shall see next episode. But that is your fantasy nugget of the day. All right, that'll conclude today's episode. We have gone through the AFC bust or players to avoid at cost. And next episode, I will be participating in the NFC players to avoid. 
And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast today, which I sincerely hope that you did, please take five seconds to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening today. See you.